There comes a time when the blankness of future is so extreme, it is such a black wall of nothingness, N not even of bad things. It's not like there's a cave full of monsters that you're afraid of entering the future. It is just nothingness. Le néant, as the French would say, the, the void, the emptiness. In the late 1990s, Stephen Fry was appearing in a West End play when he went into a terrible depression. One night, he sat in his car in the garage on the verge of suicide. In despair and confusion, he left instead on a ferry for France. I saw these rows of, you know, newspaper headlines and fears for Fry type thing. And I stared at it in complete disbelief. I mean, it was absolutely staggered. After realising he'd inadvertently prompted an international search for his whereabouts, he returned to London and admitted himself to hospital. He was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. It's horrible to contemplate a futureless future, if that isn't too impossible. And so you just want to, to step out of it, to step out of a, the, the, the whole race, the whole business. The monstrosity of being alive overwhelms you. Very sort of black stage at the moment, and uh, would love to be somewhere else other than here, frankly. I'm just praying that it'll pass, basically, because it's, it's fucking irritating, and, and I hate myself for it. I mean, I've never thought that I hear voices, but I do, I do have a voice telling me I'm a complete all the time in my head. Usually when I feel like this, I hide away. I can't this time. For me, that numbing kind of depression comes three to four times a year and lasts a week to ten days. Mood to me is like weather. If it's raining, it's no good saying it isn't raining. It is real, you know? That water is actually falling from the sky. It can take you by surprise because it can happen in a, in a sort of crossover, a transitional phase of moods when you're actually quite up and you, don't, you can't really make sense of it because it's as if the clouds are coming in but you feel good. So you think, well, this is really weird. Well, that's, what's that about? You know, and it might be two days later that it's just gotten heavier and heavier. The best talking therapy is really listening therapy. It's not talking therapy at all. There's a, a room which allows you to talk to yourself. Most of the talking is done by the client or patient. And then just occasionally, it's the usual thing of, uh, you know, you're sort of saying, I know I shouldn't. And they go, why do you say shouldn't? You know, and then you say, well, yeah, no, you're right. Oh, yes, you know. You know, and it's uh, bits of that. The thing that keeps one living is a sense of future, that there will be a tomorrow, and tomorrow I've got to do this, and then the day after I've got to do that. Not that any of these things have a particular logical purpose or a convincing reason to exist, but they somehow keep one going. In the words of Dorothy Parker, a great um, wit and writer and poet, you might as well live. Hi, I'm Matt Haig, author of Reasons to Stay Alive, which is now appearing on stage. Reasons to Stay Alive, I wrote for myself, really, for like my younger self when I was suicidal and 24 years old. What's happened with it is actually a lot of the people who come to Reasons to Stay Alive and read it, they're actually not people in that situation, but they're people who are wanting to understand what depression is like, what anxiety is like, what panic attacks are like, because they're often invisible things. So I think one of the byproducts has been to sort of make this unseen thing a bit more seen and also to give people hope, not just the people going through it, but their partners, their family members as well. I'd written a blog and people had responded very well to it and people who were very, very depressed had responded well to it. People who knew people who were very depressed said very, very nice and emotional and intense things. And um, I thought this is a good thing, talking about it, because 
mental illness is an illness still, unfortunately, surrounded by stigma. It's not really understood as an illness, it's understood as a personality trait, yet it is most definitely an illness. It's an illness like cancer or arthritis. It's not feeling a bit sad. Again, depression is not an emotion. It, it is emotional and it is a disease of thoughts, but it is not in itself an emotion that you can just sort of lift off and get on with your life and watch a bit of TV and forget about it. It's the wrong word as well. Depression is not how it feels. For me, depression, I think of like a flat tire, something punctured or I'm moving, but so many of the times, depression comes with anxiety and anxiety is a very, very fast moving thing. It speeds everything up. It's like adding cocaine to alcohol. It's just intense. And depression I've known is more like an intense sort of inner hurricane. And that's how depression feels to me. And it sort of whisks you away and takes you to somewhere alien and scary. And even if your body and everything looks slow moving, what's going on in your head is very fast and confusing. Yet, that does not have to be a terrible, terrible thing forever, for eternity. It does not have to brand you as a dark cloud person. I uh, am now generally quite a happy, confident person. Yet, I, I always know it's there. But I actually think depression has made me a better person. And not only that, I think it has made me more capable of happiness because I appreciate life more. I appreciate what it is to be sane. I appreciate everything that I used to take for granted about feeling normal and just being able to talk to friends and family. But I also believe that in making me more sensitive and making me thinner skinned and everything bad that can come from that, it actually makes me feel life more and feel the wonder and the spectacular nature of life. Even in, in um, my most recent bout of depression that I had about three years ago, I would just sort of leave the house on a night and um, step outside and look at the stars and the cosmos on a clear July evening and just stand there and just sort of appreciate and feel deep into my nerve endings the sheer wonder of what it is to be alive. Life on Life Only, recording this, an uplifting conversation about depression. So obviously there's a, a little bit of irony built into that title, but I mean it sincerely. We are going to be talking about a few things today, possibly getting the darker stuff out of the way first, and then trying to talk about the lighter side if there is one, and then obviously solutions as well. Anyway, I'm delighted to have back in my podcast universe, because like John Lennon, I consider my work to be one piece, he said pretentiously. And... Uh, <laughs> So, uh, Simon Weitzman, you're on Glass Onion, and uh, let me just tell you before I introduce you properly that that was actually the second most popular episode of Glass Onion out of 85 shows, episode 71. Anyway, how are you? Welcome to Life and Life Only. I'm very privileged to be back to see if we can smash that with Excellent. this podcast. Go I'm on. taking it that's the one that I was in then. Yeah, episode 71 of Glass Onion on John Lennon. It was you and Chris Purcell, and we talked wow. about Beatles docs. Yeah. I think I just made coffee during that. <laughs> I think you guys talked a lot, and I just made coffee. I'm pretty sure that was me. <laughs> I definitely heard you a few times. I bet that was probably just the gulping, yeah. <laughs> anyway, okay, so um, what we'll do at the beginning and the end of this conversation, would you like to just talk about your Beatles documentary, first of all? And tell us what, what stage it's at. And, uh, what state it's in. No, what stage? stage. <laughs> oh, right, okay. Not what stage. 
<laughs> well, we're ploughing through it. As people will probably know who know the project, it's been going along for about five years. And it should have come out a few years ago, but obviously there were circumstances in the world that didn't allow that to happen, both global and personal. And as a result, we are now aiming to have this out at some point in August. We've got it scheduled to be two hours long, but given what's going on at the moment with uh, everything on our timeline, it will probably give Get Back a run for its money in terms of how long it is. But it's it's going fine. We, we had a bit of a late start. We had the phenomena of the pandemic and the circumstances that now surround us in importing things during post Brexit or Brexit period, which is that we ordered all our equipment to do this uh, edit on, expecting it to come the following week, and it came nearly three months later. So, having used an etch a sketch to edit the first sort of 45 minutes together, it sort of started to fall apart, particularly if you tripped up over a curb and start all over again. We're getting there. We are getting there. It's a battle because we have so much material to work with, which is brilliant. But it does kind of hopefully inspire me to think that whatever we do with getting this first film out that um, hopefully it's the first of many because there are so many people with such a brilliant voice on there and how the Beatles have affected them and how it's affected their lives that you know you could really go on to be honest Anthony forever <laughs> doing yeah, sure. and we may well end up doing so if people like the first one and this is here there and everywhere and it's a, a film about fandom yeah, it is a it is a film about the well we say the world and we'll get to the world as we get round it. But it is a film about not just the world of fans, but the different generations and the cultural sort of shifts in the way that we perceive the Beatles and people who have been quite close to them in terms of family, people that are just fans like myself who've never met any of them, and people who spend their careers and lives doing something that's Beatle based, like you do and I suppose like I do in certain areas. It's a lovely thing because everyone is on the same level in this documentary. We have people that are quite well known and we have people, again, like myself, who are pretty much not well known at all. But we're all on the same level. So we all kind of get equal space and equal screen time or audio time. And I think it just paints a very balanced, hopefully a balanced picture of what the world of the fans is. And it's a totally unique family, as you know. There really aren't any other music families like this around the world. I was going to say, actually, um, I haven't included the Beatles in my notes for today's show, but, you know, we should probably talk when we get to um, kind of solutions later on. Or We're a bit biased, of course, because we're rabid Beatles fans, but when I have a shower in the morning, I listen to oldies radio, and every now and again a Beatles song will come on, and I just can't tell you, even after 30-odd years of fandom, how uplifting it is, because on the radio, as you know, you know, you don't know it's coming. Unless the DJ says, you know, next song is going to be, but they don't. They might say, we've got a Beatles track coming up. And then as soon as it comes on, it's just like your your heart gets lifted, doesn't it? And I'm sure people feel like with, like that with other bands. But I think you're right. The Beatles is just this unbelievable global phenomenon, you know? It's kind of like consistently finding a fiver in your wallet, isn't it? You know, <laughs> that you didn't expect to be there. <laughs> there you go. Never thought about that. Yeah. Okay. So our... Um, so our main topic is depression. We're going to broaden it out at some point to bipolarity or manic depression and talk about mental health in general. Now, um, I'm going to start us off. I'm an English teacher, and so I know the limitations of dictionary definitions when you're talking about abstract nouns, you know, like happiness and depression and sadness and that kind of thing. So it's interesting that I went to a, an online dictionary and I found two definitions of depression. And between them, they absolutely sum up two levels that we're dealing with so number one is a state of feeling sad 
And then number two is a serious medical condition in which a person feels very sad, hopeless and unimportant and is often unable to live in a normal way. And it's funny that that actually led very nicely into my next point, which is the flippant use of the word depression. So someone's having a bad day and they might say, oh, I feel really depressed. It's almost like the way our culture uses the word starving. You know, when people haven't haven't eaten for four hours and they say, oh, I'm starving. You know, it's it's developed a popular thing, which is really watering it down from what it actually is. Anyway, I've rambled a bit, but um, what do you think about that? Do you think it's used a bit too flippantly nowadays? We're a first world society, aren't we? So, yes, yes. <laughs> we talk about how difficult life is right now. And we're doing this podcast in the slightly post covid but not quite post covid era with a a major conflict going on that we're on the very edge of in another part of the world and we're having discussions about how terrible it is that there's no diesel uh, available to fill your car up and if you can get it it's like nearly two quid a gallon or not a gallon that's old-fashioned a liter and how awful that is and how terrible and how much it affects us all and then somebody said to me recently yeah but you know we're not sitting in a basement holding our cat or our dog where somebody's trying to bomb the crap out of you and probably killing the rest of your family you know so there is a kind of level that you have to kind of uh, get to so i think we do use it's quite interesting that word starving isn't it how we use it you know yeah you're right you know if i haven't raided the biscuit tin for (laughs) an hour or so i also have this terrible affliction to be honest anthony where i have a very sweet tooth but also quite a savory tooth as well and my brain has this terrible problem in the evenings of dancing between i should have really something sweet to finish the day off because then it sort of feels like finish the day and then i'll end up doing something for another hour or so and think god i really need something savory to take the edge off that sweetness but yeah we use these words you're right very flippantly Mm. everyone has a lot of problems it's the problem of being human if you're a cat or a dog it's brilliant you may live (laughs) 10 15 years if you're well looked after but the biggest problem you have is either being outside or inside or eating or not eating when something's put down for you or seeing if you're a cat seeing a bird on a on a tree and just having to sit in the window looking at it half the day but we i think a lot of the things is we construct in our first world a lot of problems for ourselves that probably don't exist but they're the ones that i'm sure we'll talk about that wake you up at four o'clock in the morning where your brain is rebooting and the color wheel is spinning when you really strip it down we have very little to worry about in comparison to other people but the other interesting part of that that i found is that when people retire you know if they've done a regular job during their lives then you get this issue where everything becomes quite traumatic and difficult and depressing and or just difficult in general and the more time you have to analyze that when you're retired the more microscoped it becomes it more zoomed in it becomes you know i remember having a discussion with somebody who was retired who did a very high powered job that the scatter cushion didn't match the sofa and this was a real problem because the new scatter cushion was meant to come at 11 o'clock in the morning and it had gone 11 and the scatter cushion hadn't arrived. And it, they had other things to do, which was, I think, to go and meet somebody for a coffee. <laughs> you know? And it all just became really quite... And at that point, you know, I think that's where my depression started, to be honest. I was like, oh, my God, actually, this is what awaits me at the other end of my life. Well, let me say a couple of things about that. I think the fact that the phrase first world problem exists is a good thing. 
because people are realizing you know, and there are memes online someone says oh you know third world i don't know if even know if we're supposed to use that but developing world whatever you want to call it problem there's floods there's earthquakes first world problem you know someone's unfriended me or something so people have managed to make fun of it which i think is is good and the other thing of what you're saying is yeah is perspective because it, it's almost become a I don't know at what point something becomes a cliche. People just decide it's a cliche. I'll think about the starving people on the other side of the world. But it's completely true. You know, I mean, I I went to the park earlier, a couple of hours ago, and I was sitting and someone came past in a wheelchair. Someone was pushing someone in a wheelchair. And the person in the wheelchair looked, oh, I don't know, 25 or something. And I was thinking, you know, I didn't get COVID. I'm not in the Ukraine. I'm not in a wheelchair. I'm in my mid-40s. You know, I'm not in my mid-80s because my parents are unfortunately approaching i mean they're in the mid 70s and very healthy for their age so they're doing all right but i think you need someone to tell you don't you to say look come on mate if you are in the first world yeah we all have problems you're absolutely right and the documentary i'm going to mention later that stephen fry made about 2006 there was a woman in that who lived in the first world but she had it really bad to the point where she couldn't really function but um, unfortunately what happens with words is they develop a sort of popular use which often deviates very far from their original use. So depression, like I said, the first one I mentioned there, a state of feeling sad. So what I'd like to get onto is the idea of a depressive state versus a diagnosable depression. Is there anything you could tell us about a depressive state? Is there any way you could kind of shake your way out of that? I mean, you or anybody else can shake your way out of that. Yeah, I mean, I'm susceptible to it. The weird thing about it is that I'm not sort of like manic or anything, but I do get into areas where there's a feeling of hopelessness yeah. in life. And a really good friend of mine the other day, was we were talking about something. He's a very successful artist, but we were talking about this uh, situation of imposter syndrome. Yes. <laughs> and I think that is something that creeps up on us. And it seems to creep up on us as we get older. I don't know why. But I could really relate to that in that I can do things and feel very confident about them without anyone having to give me any particular credit for it. You know, I'm, I'm not somebody who has depression because people don't like what I do. I'm, that doesn't affect me particularly. But I do have this horrible problem whereby I look around at other people doing things in a sort of a similar area that I do and start to feel, am I worthy of doing any of this? And why are people even listening to me or taking me seriously? And I'm a bit of a charlatan, you know. And that's possibly because on certain things in my trade, I have some good technical knowledge and on others, I have much worse technical knowledge. I don't write as prolifically as other people, but I have periods of writing prolifically. The upside of being in a sad or depressive state is... On the one hand, you can have days where you just don't feel like doing anything and everything's an effort. And then the hours seem to roll by really quickly and you just think, oh, I haven't achieved anything today. You know, I've had my biscuit, you know, he talks <laughs> about that first world problem. Or the other side of it is that, and it's something that I think happens particularly in people that have a sort of creative streak to them, is I actually become pretty productive during my more sad and possibly self-destructive periods if i could Um, just interrupt sorry to interrupt but is there a manic element to that or is that just the down feeling the manic element will be what you produce Um, right so i think i can you know i can have a particularly 
feeling of depression or, or sadness and hopelessness, but then do six paintings and write half a book or edit something together or make a film about something. And bizarrely enough, it will probably be truer to what I want to achieve that would actually make me feel happy. But bizarrely, on that side, I'm better at doing it when I'm in that state than if I'm kind of happy and alive and everything's wonderful. I'm skipping through a meadow of tulips. very interesting. Well, let me ask you, though, is there a surge of energy that comes with that? Yeah, there is a surge of energy. There may be a manic element slightly. Yeah. I've seen people with who are bipolar and I've seen people with manic conditions and i wouldn't say that i'm probably quite on that level because people that have particularly hypermanic states can be extremely creative probably far more creative and for a longer sustained time but it is actually seems to be quite damaging at the same time whereas i yeah there is an element of catharsism about my manic state where i do tend to sort of think god uh, this is so hopeless that i've actually done this and it's pretty good <laughs> um yeah it's funny then, isn't it but i think I wouldn't say that's reserved for people that suffer with a condition of depression or mania of any type. I think there is something in the human psyche that a lot of us seem to go through life wanting to kind of be accepted for something or about themselves or get some kind of acknowledgement for something they're doing and feel that if they haven't achieved something by a particular age, perhaps that they are insignificant uh, and i think one of the root evils of that of course is always being money um yes you know we as a first world society judge each other by the amount in our bank accounts and i have worked amongst a group of different people including some billionaires who i won't name them but i would consider to be some of the most loathsome people <laughs> i've ever met and who I don't think are particularly human. You know, and I have said to one of them, listen, you, you can't talk to me like that and you can't assume that you're better than me. I have just as many zeros in my bank accounts as you do. I just don't have any numbers in front of it, <laughs> you know. And essentially, you know, paper, coins, all these plastic now, all these, and cyber, uh, digital, all these things. Or just figures on the screen, in fact, because it's figures not, it's on not the screen. backed by anything it's, now. It's yeah. not backed by anything. And our tendency as a species to judge each other on what we have, what we own, what we've achieved, you know. Mm. You think of some of the great authors and artists in life who have produced probably some of their best materials in their later years. You know, we have this attitude in the UK that if you're over 25, you've had it if you haven't had a major album or something. There's a lot of things I don't like so much about the way in which life happens in America. But one of the things I really do like about America is there is a resistance, particularly in the arts, to ageism. You know, you can be 75, 80 and go on stage or do something or create something. And nobody really mentions or thinks about your age. Whereas over here, it seems to be we're obsessed with it. You know, I don't get this media obsession with how old everyone is in this country. And it seems to be that we are judged not only by our bank accounts, but by the number that's by our age. And that seems to be not only counterproductive, but it feels like it's a slightly kind of destructive and demeaning way of describing somebody. It doesn't matter. There's no relevance to a story that you're telling. Limiting as well. And it's limiting. Absolutely. All right. I sent you a few quotes. There was a website that had yes. so many quotes. I'm going to give us a few, and then I'd like you to do the same. So, 
Mm-hmm. I wish people could understand that the brain is the most important organ of our body. Just because you can't see mental illness like you could see a broken bone doesn't mean it's not as detrimental or devastating to a family or an individual. I'll be mentioning Stephen Fry and that secret life of the manic depressive quite a bit today, just to warn you. He said the same, that if you think of uh, the mind or the brain as a muscle, and imagine you had uh, what we call in England a gammy leg. You had a permanently gammy leg. He's almost saying that you could have a gammy mind. Those weren't his words. They're my words, by the way. Robin Williams said, I think the saddest people always try their hardest to make people happy because they know what it's like to feel absolutely worthless and they don't want anyone else to feel like that. So you often find people who have maybe prone to depression tend to be helpers or looking out for other people as a kind of an instinct. And then just a couple of quotes from Charles Bukowski, the writer. One of them is wonderfully cynical and the second one is more uplifting. So... I don't hate people, I just feel better when they aren't around. And uh, I like this one, you have to die a few times before you can really live. And that's something we're going to get to later, the idea that if you actually have a trouble-free life, it doesn't necessarily do you any good, because if at some point you do run into trouble, then you might not know how to deal with it. So um, I guess it's the argument that some, I don't know, darkness in your life or problems or suffering probably might be good for you long term, but obviously only up to a point. Have you got any quotes there you could give us? I was just going to come back to something really quickly. It's the Robin Williams one, I think, is really... That really resonates with me because I, I'm i an only child. I don't have children, unfortunately. So I, I compensate. I, I say the word compensate, and that sounds really bad. But I try to sort of make a difference to other people's lives by doing the best I can to make their lives better. So I can really identify with that quote very closely and I think there's so much truth in it. It's a trade-off between trying to make somebody else's life better and actually reflecting slightly in them doing well, which makes you feel better because you've made somebody else's life hopefully a bit better. We just spoke about this before we started and I, I quite like this quote. You are allowed to feel messed up and inside out it doesn't mean you're defective it just means you're human and that's a david mitchell quote and i really like that i think that is something that we forget one of the things that i always think is um we buy toys in a box and they're pristine you know they're perfect and then we get them out the box and they're no longer box fresh (laughs) i think once we're out the womb we are no longer box fresh (laughs) (laughs) yeah we've got an expiry date that's coming we do then have an expiry hopefully a long time in the future and this one, this is William C. Hannon, who says, sometimes all you can do is lie in bed and hope to fall asleep before you fall apart. That's mm. interesting because there is a common human thing, which is that our brains reset during the night and all the ills of the world seem to occur at about four o'clock in the morning, three or four o'clock in the morning, where we can go to sleep in a reasonable state of mind or we're just tired. But at three or four o'clock in the morning, we will wake up and it's a very difficult thing to get around is this kind of feeling of anxiety and hopelessness that you get where the world just seems to be churning at that time. I did go through a period of these things where I wrote a lot of stuff down a number of years ago trying to work out why so many things were going on in my head at three or four o'clock in the morning and I realised that by about three or four o'clock in the afternoon that I could strike pretty much the entire list as being irrelevant that's very interesting yeah something i noticed yeah is that well first of all i had um terrible trouble with insomnia for quite a long time really and i actually 
we're going to talk later about medication and um, what your views are. So don't tell me now. But um, I do take a very mild antidepressant, but I think I actually take it because it helps me sleep more than <laughs> what the other supposed benefits are supposed to be. And that that really did transform my life because insomnia is something I would not wish on anyone because there was a period of about 2014, which is quite recent, really. I went about three months where I just... I used to take chamomile tea, I used to deep breathe, and I used to lie there. I'm, I'm only laughing because I think sometimes humour is, is a good thing. Hyperventilating. <laughs> well, no, I was just saying to myself, I was always talking to myself, what do I have to do to go to sleep? Like, what do you have to do? I was saying to myself, I could drink a gallon of chamomile tea. I wasn't taking any uh, sleeping pills because I've always had this weird phobia of them, actually. But anyway, just to say insomnia is a tricky thing. But my relationship with four o'clock in the morning is very complicated because I used to wake up, yeah, after four or five hours sleep and just feel dreadful. But then the weird way, would you say that at that time you ever had really good creative ideas? Yes. And then you have to decide, shall I just try and go back to sleep? Because I know I'm going to feel like crap. And in my case, I've got to teach people and be happy and walk into classrooms for six bloody hours. <laughs> and not let my standards drop but then I'm having loads <laughs> of good ideas I'm having ideas for teaching I'm having ideas for songs because I'm a musician I'm having ideas for stories I once wrote only ever done this once I almost almost did automatic writing I've never quite managed to do it but this was the closest I came about four o'clock in the morning I wrote a story and when I went back to sleep and woke up again I, I couldn't remember having written it <laughs> and it was actually quite yeah. good yeah I don't know so this is jumping ahead, but let's just do it now instead. What do you think is the relationship between, uh, let's say, depressive states or more longer-term depression and creativity? Because there seem to be a disproportionate number of creative people who seem to have these episodes, at least. I think it's uh, akin to what you were talking about with automatic writing. I don't know if anyone really knows. It's a bit of an unanswered thing. I've read a few things about why creative people seem to be more prone to it. I have a feeling that, as we spoke earlier on, there is a level of imposter syndrome in most people that are creative. They don't really think they're worthy of something. I think Adele is another character in this. Somebody who's fabulously successful and obviously brilliant at what they do, who spends their entire life agonising over whether they're worthy of any of it, you know. Yes. So I think she's a very prime example, but she's one of millions, you know, of really creative people. Kurt Cobain was another one Absolutely. who just totally didn't think he was worthy of anything. He was a genius. I'm not saying being creative doesn't lead you to just naturally being a genius or anything or having these things so you can be creative and not have any of it. But I think one of the processes of getting through a cycle of depression is this natural ability to almost automatically be able to purge it through some kind of creative skill or expression, as you say. There are academics that could probably tell me why <laughs> I'm sitting there feeling really, really depressed, but writing something really good or painting something really good or filming something really good. But I don't know what it is. I don't really understand it. The usual cycle for me is that I will purge myself when I'm in a cycle of feeling low or sad about the world and life and then when I when my happiness level raises again my creativity drops off <laughs> and I don't know why that happens because you sort of feel in the natural world that the happier and more content 
and more secure you feel the more you should be able to go out and do things and I think one of the real good examples of that or one of the more poignant examples of that is you look at football players you know soccer players you know there have been football players and they're earning you know hundreds of thousands of pounds a week and they are playing brilliant football and they're superstars and yet they will have a drug addiction or a drink addiction or a gambling addiction or they will be self-harming and people say well I can't understand it you know the career's going really really well and they're earning all this money you know and it's all these things that we naturally equate to people being happy that are artificial total artificial things and I, I actually think from one of the things that during our conversation is that actually having a moderate level of depression and sadness is actually quite good for us yeah if we are predisposed to it, that it is one of the ways that we manage to purge these little pockets of talent out of ourselves, for want of a better word. We're so conditioned to it being wrong mm. and so conditioned to it being bad and at a weakness. If you have a mental health issue, as we call them, then you're weak and, you know, and I'm not so sure that's right. I think it's in, it's in most of us. And if we embrace it a little bit more, or if we were to remove ourselves from the society that tells us how we should behave during our lives, then maybe we would find it all a lot easier to cope with. Yeah, I would say that up to a certain point, or if you have dark moments, in a way they, I would say they enrich your life. Not individually, they don't enrich your life, but the whole point of it of having highs and lows is some kind of full life i would just say that again going from this documentary i've been mentioning there is a woman who who has bipolarity up to a level where she just can't do anything and i mean i think that's a different thing but i think up to a point as i was saying with the creativity i mean i still kind of have it now actually because i generally have very good days i've got so many good coping mechanisms and i've got family around me and stuff and generally I sleep very well, like I sleep at least seven hours virtually every night. And then occasionally I'll wake up at five for no reason. And I won't necessarily be feeling bad, but then the rest of the day will be like, oh, I've had two hours sleep less. But then <laughs> this weird thing happens is that at the end of the day, I kind of think, well, I was actually more productive and a bit more creative. And actually my classes probably went better than normal. But the slight price I had to pay was that I was deprived of about two hours sleep and I felt a bit, it's a weird thing where I felt a bit below par, but then all my activities actually turned out to be better. <laughs> I can't explain that at all, you know. Well, do you remember that thing at school when it was about two o'clock in the afternoon or three o'clock in the afternoon when you used to have a small bottle of milk and you used to put your head on the table and have a think and a, and a little sort of nap for half an hour at school? I mean, not all teachers do that, but um, no, I'm joking. Um, I was going to say, uh, was that know, when, I was, when I was a kid, you know, that was a thing we used to do in the afternoon, you know. But yeah, I mean, one of the really helpful things, I had to do an overnight job for nearly a year because I was trying to help my mum. She had cancer. And I thought, I'll take this overnight job. My work had dried up because of the pandemic and I took an overnight job and it meant going to bed 
because I was still looking after my mum and also my my girlfriend's um, foster dad, you know, as we called him. I, I'd finish these things relatively late and then go to bed thinking, oh God, I've only got like five hours until I have to get up at three o'clock in the morning and do this job outside in the freezing cold and rain. And um, that would be really difficult because if you get yourself into a place, it's like when you have to get on a plane or go somewhere the next day and you go to bed and you think, oh, I've got to get up at four or five o'clock in the morning and I can't sleep and you you work yourself into kind of frenzy one of the really weird sort of self-taught tricks i've done on that is just to say to myself i'm not going to get a full night's sleep but i'll have a nap i'll get a few hours in and i'll feel better because if i've laid down in the afternoon sometimes to have a nap then i can get up feeling much better and i found that generally that sort of cycle of not being able to get to sleep stops when you convince your mind that you're only going to get a couple of hours or an hour Ooh, um, I like and then that. rather than oh my god i'm not going to get the seven or eight hours i'm meant to have and you do generally find yourself late for work the next day if you do that <laughs> <laughs> but I find I found also mentally that you'd wake up if I was going to bed at 10 and having to eat up at 3. Normally you'd say, oh, God, I've only had five hours and I feel like crap, you know. But if you say, well, I'm going to have a nap for a couple of hours and then you wake up and it's like 10 to 3 and you're like, wow, I nearly got my five, I nearly got five hours sleep. So you're already in this slightly more positive frame of mind when you get up. That's really interesting because people used to sleep, didn't used to sleep the night through. They'd sleep, I don't know, four or five hours, get up for two hours. No one's quite sure why they do this, but I think it's called biphasic sleep. You sleep for four hours, get up for an hour or two, and then have another, whatever it is, two, three hours. And having mm-hmm. a nap in the afternoon is kind of a, a form of that. You know, you have four or five hours during the night. If you can catch a nap of, a, I don't know, even an hour or two, whatever it is, you do still get your quota. I think maybe we're a bit fixated on lying down and getting seven hours continuous sleep. I think that might be a bit of a cultural thing. Mm-hmm. In the olden days... When life was less complicated, medieval times, <laughs> I wouldn't want to go back there, but you know what I mean? In the olden days, before they had less technology, their sleep was perhaps a bit more natural and people would go in that cycle, yeah. I've had that before when I've had five hours during the night, felt a bit rubbish, powered through a few hours and then had a nap for an hour in the afternoon and then felt really good. Because mm-hmm. naps are kind of magical, aren't they? I think the Spanish have got it right. <laughs> I went to a seminar on narpolepsy. Unfortunately, I didn't get to it because I fell asleep on the train. But um, That was a joke, yes, yes. Your delivery (laughs) Um, is so um, dry that it's so hard to know. (laughs) Yeah, that's been the story of my life. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I I think we are conditioned. We're so conditioned in the way that we live. And um, we're so conditioned to the circumstances that we base what we should be achieving things by. And I do envy people who go through their lives and just, they kind of, their mind is off grid. I think if you can take your mind off grid and not live your life to the expectations of what everyone else thinks you should be doing and how you should be as a person, then you free yourself (laughs) from it. And it doesn't matter if you have some money or no money because you're not living by everybody else's stand or your appreciation or lack of appreciation for the way you should be living you're on a totally different sphere so i do know a few people that have been able to take their mind off grid and live in a different way and um, we do live in this very fast-paced society where 
everything has to be done like that, you know. And we get very, very angry when, you know, when the internet doesn't go onto a news page in less than two seconds because it said it would. It said it would do it. And it hasn't, you know, it's taken four. And, you know, when you look back and when probably you and I were growing up, you know, where we had a tin can or two tin cans and a piece of string and pretended they were (laughs) walkie-talkies. For many years, I didn't have a smartphone. And I had a smartphone and I found that my anxiety level went through the roof with it. This was when they sort of first came out and I got rid of it. And I went back to having what people now call a drug dealer's phone, you know, sort of like a... (laughs) Very small, very basic mobile, disposable, basic phone. Oh right, one that one they can get rid of quickly, just in case. Yeah. Ah, So I I had a Nokia something, really small little thing, and the the battery on it lasted about two weeks. You know, because it didn't do anything apart from make calls and very basic texts. And I just found that if I was disconnected from that world, that my life was a lot easier. Yeah. And it was only because my parents were getting older. And my girlfriend had been ill and I was traveling abroad a lot that I thought, you know, I can't really stand in. There aren't any pay phones to go and phone my folks with, you know, and how would they get hold of me if they needed something? But I think the advent of the smartphone has been a real big part of people's increased anxiety because the ability to be absolute you know as, as I, I think i was one of the first people to call people smartphone zombies and i'm as bad i'm bad at it uh, we have this absolute addiction of having to look at the screen having to either affirm that we are that you know upload a picture of our lunch make sure that the world is still in one piece as you said the ghastly horrendous nightmare of somebody you didn't know at all unfriending you um and what that means to you psychologically i have nothing against people with smartphones i have one but i think they are akin to self-harming in a lot of cases i used to go filming around the world back in the days where you had a monitor as a director i would spend i would go around the world looking at a monitor and i would very rarely see the world with my own eyes at all you know it was completely through this thing and it was like i'd see the world through a tv set i could be in i was working very fortunate to work on the lion king and um i spent a year or so before it was being animated filming animals in africa and i didn't see any of them they were all on a monitor other people were filming them out of vans and stuff i was just collating on a monitor and it just sort of suddenly jumped out at me when i was watching people as you do on a train Every single person's got, or almost every single person's got a device. Yeah. yeah. And the beauty of looking out the window and seeing the world, actually looking physically at something, and, you know, in a train going by. And I'm like gardening, so I like to see what's in everyone's gardens oh, and what, right. they, or with, or what they've done, you know, which is difficult when the train's going very quickly. But I do like to have the idea that I put the phone away and I like to sort of spot who else is not on their phone it's usually much older people but even older people now do it but um i do sort of feel that that's a fairly depressing part of uh, and it's sort of almost a self-destructive part that we have become so 
you know, we, we have this thing, you know, virtual reality, we're going into this meta universe and all these things. And I don't necessarily think that's a healthy place for a human being to be. No, not at all. I mean, we don't have to buy into it, of course, but uh, there is a point but where even if you don't <laughs> like to bow to pressure, which I'd, I almost have a make it a badge of honour not to bow to pressure just to do things because everyone else is. But then you do reach a point where it's, it becomes very difficult not to have a certain technology and i'll be honest i pretty much hate my smartphone i mean i i got it originally i think i've said this story on the podcast but i got it originally because when i was in spain working as an english teacher there was a point where the school would send alerts to all the teachers saying we have a new student and it was first come first served and when i didn't have a smartphone i would check my email they'd come by email or by text alert no i think they were by email actually yeah and I'd get home in the evening not having accessed my email because I didn't have a smartphone. I couldn't be bothered because I wanted to do other stuff during the day. <laughs> I'd get home and all these jobs had disappeared. So I was forced. I know some people won't believe me, but I was forced to get one. And um, I think, you know, trying to cut off as many notifications as you can. And I probably only use about four apps. I like Google Maps and I have one for tuning my guitar, but <laughs> it's not that many other ones. <laughs> WhatsApp as well. So I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I think it's... You could almost call smartphones a, a boon for the mental health industry. because Yeah, 100%. And I think, you know, we are predisposed to falling into the trap of it a lot. But maybe that's a generational thing. I mean, we're kind of passengers to all this technology, but the younger people that are born into it, the affirmation or destruction that it causes is, is artificial in many cases. It doesn't exist. We've just made it exist and we've made it important. But it isn't in reality life should be a lot simpler for us you know and i think that's why we've talked about your mind going off grid i've got a really good friend who was very much involved with entertainment industries and stuff who now builds off-grid houses or dwellings and seem to be far better in their own state of mind than they ever used to be because I think we do bring it upon ourselves. It's like we're, we're talking right now in this podcast during, you know, an absolutely appalling conflict in Ukraine. Yeah. I, you know, I had a few days over the last few days where I, first thing I did when I came down, having, I, and I'm a radio person, I'm not a TV person particularly, is put on BBC news you know on the computer and have it in the background just of all this devastation and horror and there is this horrible guilt we're not doing enough to help we're not doing enough all the time to a point where like i am driving myself nuts even listening to this because i at the moment unless i have to do something like bear arms or take somebody into my home or triage somebody that's been injured because it's come that close i can't force myself to be totally enveloped by it because otherwise you do absorb all of that into you and it's that feeling of hopelessness again that you can't do enough or we're not doing enough or as a society we're not doing why has this happened and there's a quote that i'm going to come back to which is on screen here it takes us slightly back into a different area but it's actually relevant to all the things i think we've been talking about and it says people in therapy are often in therapy to deal with people in their lives who won't go into therapy you know, we talk about depression and people say, oh, it wasn't like this in my day. You know, it wasn't like this. You know, we went through the world wars. It wouldn't feel like we were, I don't know, I'm doing that accent, but, uh, you know, it was much better and we didn't have it. You know, we just soldiered on and it was all great. And it wasn't. The reality of it was that it's always been this bad. It's just horrible all the time. It's just that we didn't have it on a smartphone. We didn't have 
consistent 24 hours. And sort of this commentary and like latest updates, almost as if it's a, yeah. like a football match. We or never something. had that. Yeah. You know, we didn't know about the Titanic for two days. But it's always been going on. It's just our exposure to it and the drilling into us of these things. And then you have the other side of this, which is a totally different topic, which is people that go the other way and cope with it all by saying it's all untrue <laughs> oh, yeah. and it's all a lie and, and we're being manipulated and our minds are being driven to accept all this stuff and i'm not saying they're always wrong but i think there is a state of medium in between which is probably the truth but it's a them and us conflict and that's been really unhealthy during the pandemic really destroyed a lot of people's mental health you're either on the side that doesn't believe that there's a pandemic or you're on the side that does believe there's a pandemic and then we should do all these things and it's like they're two sets of rival gangs and the media particularly has been very good at baiting both sides you know i do listen to a lot of people that have the other opinion of things and it upsets me and disturbs me but i do feel that there is a massive amount of manipulation in society to make people divided in this way and i think that has affected people's mental health more in some ways than the actual pandemic you were talking about food and i think that's really relevant to state of mind and i I just wanted to get your thoughts because you've done a lot of research on diet and of course one of the things that fuels our mental state is the fuel we put in ourselves yeah well this was part of the notes i had on I don't know, solutions or or things like that. I've kind of uh, John Lennon style yo-yoed between extreme unhealthiness and extreme health. And, you know, I said I wasn't going to mention the Beatles, but hey, when I was young, John Lennon informed almost everything I did. I just followed everything he did, basically, or tried it at least. We personally have a very strict diet called macrobiotic, uh, which makes you high as a kite, folks, and no paranoia. The whole diet is based around not eating food with any kind of artificial colouring, chemical or anything in. And until the people who put the chemicals into all our food and water change their minds or we make it so as they have to, the thing is to read everything you eat. Just read every packet and see how much dope they're putting in there. They're talking about drug problem. You want to see what you're eating every morning. Just every packet's full of government-sponsored chemical colouring. Everything's grown with drugs. If you take as much trouble over your food as you do over your clothes, then you can find out where you can buy food that hasn't been touched by chemical. And then it's like having a car and putting the worst kind of petrol in or trying to run it on sort of Vaseline. It doesn't run too well. And if you really get your machine ticking over with the right food, it really outpaces anything around. If you actually research food too deeply, you will be utterly horrified by what you find. Basically, in a nutshell, the food you get, basically it's processed food, you know, the stuff you get from uh, Sainsbury's in England, whatever the equivalent would be in America and in other countries. Essentially, everything is pretty much processed. So everything you buy that's in a packet is processed and what they often contain is things that are called excitotoxins so if you ask the average person what do they think of say mcdonald's or milk chocolate or something like that they will probably tell you it's highly addictive you know there was the guy who ate mcdonald's for a month to supersize me if you remember that and what what he made clear was that there was a, a physical and mental component you know, he was got throwing up. He he felt like he was addicted. His mood went all over the place almost from day one. 
So these things called excitotoxins, one that people may have heard of is MSG, you know, monosodium glutamate, which is you'll find in a lot of Chinese food, for example. But they're given these some benign sounding names. And that's a lot. You find that a lot with marketing in all areas of life. You know, bad things are given sort of euphemistic names. So excitotoxins like that. And basically the food you buy, which is sort of industrial processed food, is loaded with this. So the more you eat it, it will play havoc with your mood because it's essentially poisonous. And it will also it will give you a sort of a drug high followed by a crash. But it will also make you come back for more. And if you ask anyone that's fasted or has eaten only fruit for a few days, what they'll tell you is once you get through the sort of pangs of what I call food anxiety, because, you know, we were saying earlier, we, we're using the word starving when we don't really mean it. A lot of hunger is actually food anxiety. And you can actually tell because it actually affects a different part of your body, weirdly enough. So other than getting through those cravings of these addictive preservatives and everything, people who fast or people who tell you they only eat fruit for a few days, they actually say after a while they feel much less hungry. And I got this as well. I was absolutely amazed. I was like, well, I'm eating a lot less and I feel less hungry. And then I listened to a few podcasts and audio books and read some books and I realized why. I want to put a positive spin on that to say that, you know, diet massively affects mental health. And unfortunately, your, your average doctor, and I've tussled with a few doctors over the years, they don't really want to know about that. And um, somebody in my family is a doctor, and he almost certainly isn't going to listen to this, purely because he probably doesn't even know I'm doing podcasts. But anyway, I might even change that to a friend. Yeah, <laughs> Let's say someone close to me is a doctor, and... Um, they said that in their training, they were told nothing about nutrition, basically. It's not part of the doctor's training, but I tell you, it is massive. So if you change your diet, lighten your diet, try and eat more fruit, drink a lot of water, it can have profound effects on your mental health. Let me just put it that way. Somebody said to me that, you know, if you want to live well, eat the colours of the rainbow. And that's why I exist almost entirely on Haribo. Ah, yes, you see. I'm joking, I'm joking. No, but you brought, <laughs> but, you brought up an interesting but, point yeah. of taking a fact and then... Uh, I know you were already joking, but I'm sure a lot of people do. <laughs> taking a fact and working it to what they would like it to be. Exactly. Five a day, um, oh, yeah. that's all right. I'll have a banana milkshake. That's part of my five a day. <laughs> yes, five a day. Uh, yeah, marzipan fruit, you know, that's the other one, isn't it? Well, yeah. chips contain potatoes. So if you, if you work that around yeah. to your logic, yeah, that's five yeah. a day. But I think you're right. I mean, you know, one of the things that um, has affected our sort of mental health or the decline of our mental health over the decades is portion sizes are just ridiculous. I mean, there's the levels of depression I go to, particularly when I go to America, where, you know, they you order something and they bring sort of enough to fill a buffet with. And you're already tired when it comes because you know it's going to be ridiculous. You're tired at just and the idea of digesting it. The idea <laughs> You know, the old sort of adage of meat sweats, that's sort of a, a, an element that uh, I sort of feel when these things come. But I, I'm a vegetarian now, and I eat a lot of vegan food and um, try and stay away from processed foods as much as I can. I am, as, though I, I'm a, in a long-term relationship, I live on my own, so I am still susceptible to the Pringles and chocolate days that I think most middle-aged single men have, you know, and try to convince myself that I didn't have anything else. But I have to say, my grandfather had a series of massive heart attacks. And after one of them, and he must have been 
in his 60s at this point, decided that he just basically said bollocks to all of it, you know. He tried to eat all the right things, and he just decided all the things that he really liked were custard, chips, chocolate, and bananas. And bizarrely enough, the last sort of decade of his life, that's what he existed on. And he actually lived very well, and it, was, it wasn't so much to do with what he was putting into himself. It's how he felt about the fact that he had had this... I think if you've had a brush with death, as it were, then it was kind of like, well, I don't know which day is going to be my last, so if I want chips and chocolate and bananas and... But, I mean, obviously, that was just an example of somebody whose mind works in a particular way. You're absolutely right, though. We do have to look at what we're putting in ourselves, and processed foods have so many as you said, appalling things in it that we don't realise how much that changes our state of mind. And we sometimes look at people in countries, in situations, and they're less fortunate than we are, a lot less fortunate than we are, but they seem to be sort of bizarrely healthier than us. And it's because they don't eat all this crap that we do. They eat much better food or they make food properly. But again, that comes down to our way of life here. You know, on the continent, it always amazed me when I was married, going over to France, and you'd have two hours off for lunch, and you'd sit and have a proper lunch. Proper bread with proper butter and proper food that was made from a market or local eat, produce. Eaten you know? slowly, I suppose, as well. And you'd eat it slowly, and you'd talk, and you'd have this kind of slower pace of life. And the UK is just awful at this kind of like, you can't stop for lunch, you just stuff it in, you know, while you're running. You know, if you could inject it into yourself, you would. So I think there is a state and a quality and a, a way of life that we're so, you know, we're beaten over the head, we have to be like here. And the truth is we don't. Yeah, just going back to media, we won't talk about Ukraine now, but just to say that mainstream media, as they call it, BBC and everything, does kind of feed this fear thing. They, they do kind of stoke it up and it's done in a very sort of respectable, <laughs> polished way. I actually get a lot of uh, news from uh, podcasters and I temper it, you know, I, I completely agree with you that there are, people will tell you that everything's fake and I've actually done a couple of episodes about the phrase conspiracy theory and making the argument that there are those people around but then stuff that's not on the news is often dismissed as conspiracy theory when in fact some of it does actually turn out to be true anyway fake news is used by both sides of the argument so nobody knows what the truth is at all and that seems to have been constructed to create a war of sorts between people which is totally unhealthy i'm really pleased you said that because i I don't want my listeners who've maybe listened to previous episodes to think that I am one of those people who thinks that everything's fake. But I think you're right. There's fakeness on both sides and the truth is somewhere in the middle. And where it is in the middle, because the middle is a big place. If you take two extremes and everything else is in the middle, <laughs> where the hell is it on that continuum? Who knows? But Well, you're right. You've used the word extreme. And that's, that's as a society, what's happening to us as we're being pushed into these extreme edges of it. And in the middle, there is a really delicious, very well-made apple pie (laughs) that everyone could eat and be happy with, but we're being magnetically drawn back from it. That's an apple pie with fresh apples, everybody. She wasn't telling you an apple pie loaded with excitotoxins, everybody. Yeah. Although I must, I must say that if I do get back into music and have another band, I will call it the excitotoxins. Ah, nice. Yes. A fantastic name for a band. Uh, I could give you some of those euphemistic names if I find them as well. (laughs) The different albums. Yeah, but they're not as catchy as Excitotoxins. 
I'm going to ask you about Professor Green in a second, but for that, I'm just going to... I always like to recommend things. I'm going to recommend a book called Reasons to Stay Alive by Matt Haig. That's H-A-I-G. I read this book probably about five or six years ago, and I haven't read it again, but I think I'm going to, actually. It's a very easy-to-read book. He did another book called uh, The Humans, a novel, which I loved, which uh, if you want to see how balmy our society is, that's a good way, <laughs> good place to go. But um, I want to read just a few paragraphs called In Praise of Thin Skins. Here we go. I have a thin skin. I think this is part and parcel of depression and anxiety, or to be precise, being a person quite likely to get depression and anxiety. I also think that I'll never fully get over my breakdown 14 years ago. If the stone falls hard enough, the ripples last a lifetime. I've gone from never feeling happy to feeling happy, or at least somewhere in the ballpark, most of the time. So I'm lucky, but I have blips. Either blips when I'm genuinely depressed and anxious, or blips caused by me fighting the onset of depression and anxiety by doing something stupid like getting excessively drunk, coming home at five in the morning after losing my wallet and having to plead with taxi drivers to take me home. Told you he used humour, which I appreciate. Generally, day to day, I don't fight it. I accept things more. This is who I am. The trick is to befriend depression and anxiety, to be thankful for them, because then you can deal with them a whole lot better. And the way I've befriended them is by thanking them for my thin skin. Sure, without a thin skin, I would never have known those terrible days of nothingness, those days of either panic or intense bone-scorching lethargy, the days of self-hate or drowning under invisible waves. But would I go along to a magical mind spa and ask for a skin-thickening treatment? Probably not. You need to feel life's terror to feel its wonder. And I feel it today, actually, right now, in what could seem like quite a grey, overcast afternoon. I feel the sheer, unfathomable marvel that is this strange life we have here on Earth. The seven billion of us clustered in our towns and cities on this pale blue dot of a planet, spending our allotted 30,000 days as best we can in glorious insignificance. I like to feel the force of that miracle. I like to burrow deep into this life and explore it through the magic of words and the magic of human beings. And I'm glad to feel every tumultuous second of it and glad for the fact that when I walk into the vast room with all the Tintorettos in it in the National Gallery, my skin literally tingles and my heart palpitates. And I'm glad for the synesthesia that means when I read Emily Dickinson or Mark Twain, my mind feels actual warmth for those old American words. Feeling, that is what it's all about. Yeah, it's a lovely piece, that, isn't it? Yeah, it's a great book, Reasons to Stay Alive by Matt Haig. And um, in this uh, Stephen Fry documentary, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but at the end they say, and this is bipolarity rather than just depression, they say if you could uh, press a button and get rid of it with all its foibles, would you press that button? And there was one lady who, like I said, had a very, very severe completely dysfunctional form of it, and she said, I would press a button. But every other person, including Stephen Fry, said, no way. Because after a while, they realised that's kind of who they were and that there was a richness to it. And again, if there's anyone listening who has a very, very severe case of it, you might not want to take what I say at face value because I haven't had that myself. But up to a certain level, there's a richness in it. I think you mentioned that earlier. When I first met my girlfriend, she told me she was bi. And I thought, this is going to be really exciting and wonderful. But it turns out she meant bipolar. (laughs) And that's true, is it? <laughs> sort of. <laughs> we'll leave it. We'll leave it there. Not really. No, I. I think one of the things that the recommendations that you're making are excellent. There's a book by a guy called Matthew Johnson called "I Had a Black Dog," which is another kind of way of looking at things, and it's actually quite an 
enlightening book and it's beautifully written and that's been very helpful we talked about professor green aka stephen manderson who talks about suicide anxiety and depression and he's just brilliant he's so honest about it all but the way he speaks and the way he conducts himself and the way he translates it perhaps to a younger generation than mine is so in tune with accepting that these things can happen and how to deal with them and i think if the younger people find themselves in a situation where they are feeling anxious or depressed or suicidal then you know go on to the mighty internet which we've been talking about avoiding and take yourself to youtube and just put in professor green on suicide anxiety and depression you will find half a dozen to a dozen really excellent talks and pieces that he's done on it i think he's an extraordinary person apart from being a brilliant lyricist i think he's so well connected with the whole psyche of what it is to deal with it that you come out of it feeling quite positive because he is very upbeat in the way that he does it. He's extremely honest at the same time. So there's that. And I've, there's a book that I think a lot of people have got by Charlie Mackesy, which is called The Boy, The Mole, The Fox and The Horse. It's a beautifully illustrated and handwritten book. And I've bought it for a few people that have dealt with My mum's been dealing with cancer and obviously we lost my dad a couple of years ago. So we've been dealing with all of that. And I bought her this book and it's been incredibly helpful because the one thing it actually taught her from reading through it is that it's not a weakness to ask for help. And I think that's one of the things that people who suffer with depression and anxiety are always very loath to do is admit it and ask for help. So my mum's found that enormously helpful because my mum comes from a very working class family you know you never ask for help you just get through life and i think the fact that she has empowered herself to ask other people for help has been a a real freedom a revelation for her to get through stress anxiety depression of loss and illness um so i think that's really interesting and the power of comedy is huge oh yes let's talk about that as the antichrist as it were to the wonderful book that is the boy the mole the fox and the horse is another book which I actually refer to quite a lot, which is actually called The Panda, the Cat and the Dreadful Teddy. And it is a parody on that wonderful book. And it's by a guy called Paul Maggers, M-A-G-R-S. I love this book because it just pulls it to pieces, but it's so funny and so witty that you can't help but feel cheered up by it. Comedy is an enormous, I wouldn't say cure, but it is an enormous help. So if you are... If you go to bed and you're watching something pretty heavy or depressing or hard, then it will sit and play on your mind. And if you have earlier on in the evening sat through something that has those kind of elements to it, I really recommend that you do, even if you go on to like Dave or something, and just watch an old episode of Mock the Week or Have I Got News for You? Or, you know, if you're in the US and you get a chance to watch Curb Your Enthusiasm or, or any of these things which are just brilliant something that makes you feel that makes you laugh and makes you smile it's such a good tonic for things it is so i think you know if you can and you have the ability to look through things in the evening try not to fall down a you know if you are prone to kind of falling down the road of you know looking into news in some depth and then going into very stark corridors of it pull back from that and just accept the fact that you aren't going to change the world and actually one of the things that we can do which is uniquely human apart from singing which is another thing music's a uniquely human thing is laughter which is uniquely human um there are some monkeys that can laugh but it is generally uniquely human the end of power of comedy is just 
extraordinary. So I have one last thing, if I Yeah, may, go on, go on. Anthony, which is that one of my grandfather's best friends was Spike Milligan, who suffered, of course, from manic depression and anxiety, all sorts of issues, and was institutionalised numerous times for it, but was a genius and funny at the same time. And um, I wrote, when I was younger, something called Howard and a Small Piece of Red with a group of friends. And the idea of this exercise, we would write something funny, but the person it would then take the previous six pages on would only see the last paragraph. And it'd have to then reconstruct and make the story go in the direction only from reading the last paragraph. And we took this exercise, which was very funny in places and ridiculous in others, and I sent it to through my grandfather as it turned out to spike who was being detained for his own safety i sent a copy of this to him basically what happened was about six weeks later i got in the post a envelope and in that envelope there was a sort of a5 small piece of blue lined note paper which spike had written a note in yellow crayon on and it's obviously the sharpest thing they would allow him to have at the oh, time. I see, yeah. and it simply said dear simon and I thought I was mad. Love Spike. Oh, there you go. What an endorsement. What an endorsement. But also somebody who, even at the darkest point, would find the most brilliant humour in it. And I think one of the things that I would say that we said earlier on is we drag ourselves down the road of hell by thinking that, we're, that depression is unique to us individually in life. And that the reality of it is that we need to kind of embrace certain sides of that and understand that you can be quite productive and creative through that and that the silver lining is that you can do that and it's a part of the part of solving the crisis that is depression is to kind of go through these things so it's really important that people do try and do that and I think the other thing I would say to people which I do is walk as much as you can if you're able to because walking does actually change your mind the further you can walk the more you can walk and people talk about their 10,000 steps but the reality is if you can get out and have a good walk you may not come back feeling fantastic but you will feel better than when you went out and just remembering that music is there for you and comedy is there for you and that actually asking for help and being around other people because you'd be surprised to find how many people are like you all right I've got a few things just to clear up before we finish here. There were things that I wanted to get into, but I think we've... Was it my invoice? Oh, yes, yes. That involves some zeros. You can work the rest out. Like you said, music, yes. Comedy, yes. I mean, I would say, if you're in England, I don't know, Alan Partridge, Blackadder, Faulty Towers. I mean, Faulty Towers, it's just timeless you know he there's a reason why john cleese and connie booth spent weeks on each script to get it perfect exercise as you said i remember reading in some book i can't remember which one running up a hill and then down the other side is not only good exercise but it's a wonderful metaphor for life in that you do the hard work to get to the top and then you will get some reward which is you get to you know sprint down the other side of the hill i'm a massive proponent of meditation i think i was saying to you i think it was off mic meditation or medication there's only one letter difference but there's a huge uh, some people would fall into one camp one would fall into the other but yeah meditation if you've never tried it if the if the word scares you then call it mindfulness which is a <laughs> a less loaded term and then uh, again it seems like an old cliche but thinking about people that are far worse off than yourself which is circling back to what we said right at the beginning when i was saying i was you were talking about Ukraine and I was saying I was in the park and someone went by in a wheelchair who looked about 25 years old. Coping mechanisms, journaling is one, as they call it in America, diary writing we might call it in England. 
mean, I like writing anyway, but I don't think you have to be a writer to get a lot out of that. Just putting it down on paper has a psychological effect. And then um, I won't go into this now, but a thing called cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, which is really the difference between that and what you'd probably find in a Woody Allen film when he's lying on a settee talking about his childhood. This is much more scientific and it's looking at what's in the moment, not what happened to you when you were a child, but what you're actually feeling now. And it it seeks to um, connect thoughts, emotions, bodily sensations and behavior. That's definitely worth looking into. And, you know, I think this has been an uplifting uh, conversation about depression, which was my intention. And uh, if anyone would like to write to me at the usual address, lifeandlifeonlypod at gmail.com, if you would like any other things we could recommend or, you know, I've got, there's millions of resources, almost literally millions now out there. And um, I want to say thank you to you for doing this. I think it's been great. Could you give us some... where listeners could find you and just mention once one more time your Beatles project. Well, they can find me if they walk about for long enough in Luton. Okay, um, just walk the streets of Luton. <laughs> walk the streets of Luton, you will find me. And if you do find me, you know, tell me where I live and return me home. I would say that, um, not that it's hugely important, but if you are a Beatles fan and you love the Beatles, then if you go to Beatles Doc, which is, uh, as in documentary, BeatlesDoc.com, you will find out a little bit more about what we're doing. And one of the things that's really interesting about that is that we have had stories of people talking about how the Beatles have got them through really difficult times in their lives and how the power of that musical canon that is the Beatles has got them through everything. So... You know, if somebody wants to come and tell us a story about how they've conquered anxiety and depression by the Beatles, then head to beatlesdoc.com and you will have some friends there who will be very happy to listen to your story as well. Fantastic. I'm actually about to teach a lady in Brazil who found me through one of the podcasts and wants an English course centred on Beatles. Not all Beatles, but... Well, she'll find out. Probably will be all Beatles, but... You should record that and put it in the film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They haven't actually started yet. She's trying to get her company to pay for it, which could, that could be a long drawn out process, but I'm hoping... uh... Well, when you do, let me know, because that's the kind of thing we're doing. That's the kind of stories that we thrive on. I mean, it is a fantastic thing, you know, that in America you can study the Beatles, can't you? And of course, if you're a teacher, you can Oh, you can hear now. Yeah, you can hear, really? Yeah. Oh, if they're looking for teachers. If anyone's listening... uh, There's a course in Liverpool. Anyone's listening, uh, I'm available available for weddings bar mitzvahs and beatles courses weddings bar mitzvahs i was gonna say funerals but no i don't want to say that funerals and beatles parties beatles parties yeah. beatles courses and just before we go just a quick note to the audience thank you very much for listening please leave ratings reviews all that good stuff feedback life on life only pod at gmail.com buy me coffee.com forward slash anti returner if you want to help the show out and i'm also a life coach so if anyone is interested in life coaching I tackle mental health issues again up to a point because I'm not a qualified therapist. I'm a life coach and there's a bit of a grey area there, but certainly CBT is something that I've become quite well versed in. But yeah, other than that, just give us some feedback. We'd love to hear what you thought about the show. And Simon, once again, thanks a lot for being on. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on and hope we have um, extolled some nuggets to people that will benefit from our strengths and weaknesses, let's say. That's it. We're just human, aren't we? Being human, yes, yes. Being human is okay. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Give us a goodbye. Oh, goodbye, and take care. Be happy, be well. Same for me.